Good morning. My name's Emily. If we haven't met, I love being a pastor at New Denver. I just get so much joy when I see all of your shining faces walking in those doors in the morning. And I think you look especially good today. So I thought I should tell you, like you didn't just roll out of bed. I feel like some of you even showered and this has nothing at all to do with my sermon, but I just thought you should know that I love you. Also, this guy's back from sabbatical. So be sure to say hi. To Stephen Redden after the service. Give him a great big hug. Even if you've never met him, he loves it. Just give him a great, great big hug. Start being his feet. Just, okay. Okay, maybe not. Um, what are we talking about today? Today, we are wrapping up our series called Devoted, a look at the lives of Hannah and Samuel. Two weeks ago, we looked at the story of Hannah. She was an Israelite woman in the Old Testament who struggled with infertility. She prayed to God and made him a vow saying that if he gave her a baby, that she would give that baby right back to him. She would devote her son to the service of Yahweh. She would send him to live with Eli, the priest, all the days of his life. God answered her prayer with a yes, and she became pregnant and gave birth to her son, Samuel. Last week, we read that when Samuel was a child, he began hearing from God. This was significant because it marked Samuel as Israel's next leader, but I think even more significant is this showed God's continued devotion to Israel. Israel had failed to be devoted to God, and yet God was still devoted to Israel. We explored God's devotion to his people, and we saw that just like God was devoted to Israel, God is devoted to us, and he shows us his devotion in three main ways. God made us, God loves us, and God is always with us. We asked why be devoted to God, because God is devoted to us. Today we're going to take a closer look at Samuel and his story, and then we'll end with talking about what it might practically look like to live a life devoted to God. So let's jump in with this question. Who was Samuel? Here's what we've already said in the series one more time. He was Hannah's son, the one she devoted to God as the fulfillment of the vow that she made. He lived with Eli, the priest, from the time he was two or three years old. We know that in at least one instance, he heard a prophetic message from God as a child. And then we read that he grew in stature and in favor with God and with people. Which, by the way, if that sounds familiar, that's how Jesus is also described as a child by the gospel writer Luke. Today we're going to explore who Samuel turned out to be as an adult. So Samuel was the leader of Israel for a season, and he was unique in his leadership role. We've talked about how Hannah and Samuel were around at the end of the time of the judges. And when we say judges in our culture, in our context, I think we picture a courtroom and a gavel, and Israel's judges could function that way, but they were more than that. They were the leader of the 12 tribes of Israel, and especially the military leader, leading God's people into battle against neighboring people groups. Samuel became a bridge figure between the time of the judges and the time of the kings. When he grew up, he served as Israel's last judge, and then he anointed Israel's first two kings, Saul and David. But Samuel was maybe most notably a prophet. And as a Levite by birth and having grown up under the tutelage of Eli, he also sometimes functioned as a priest. So as a prophet, he would hear from God and relay God's message to the people. He was especially concerned with calling the Israelites to repentance when they had turned away from God. Again and again, he would remind the people to be devoted to God. And then functioning as a priest, he would pray for the Israelites, relaying the people's messages back to God. And in 1 Samuel chapter 7, we even see him making animal sacrifices for the people as a priest would do. So to recap, Samuel was a judge, he anointed kings, he was a prophet, and sometimes he also functioned as a priest. Samuel wore a lot of hats. But I think what's most significant about Samuel 
is his glowing reputation throughout scripture. He was a man of integrity, and he was wholeheartedly devoted to God throughout his life. Here's the way Samuel is described in one passage. Samuel is a man of God. He is highly respected, and everything he says comes true. He's a man of God. He's highly respected by the people, and he proves that he is a true prophet, accurately hearing from God, because the words that he says, everything he says, it really happens. It comes true. If there's one flaw we maybe see in Samuel, it's perhaps in his parenting. We have very little information about Samuel's home life as an adult, about his wife and kids. And then when it comes to how your kids turn out, a wise friend of mine likes to say, we can't take all the credit and we can't take all the blame. So maybe Samuel was actually a really good dad and we don't have that recorded in scripture, but regardless, unfortunately, his sons do not follow in his ways. As Samuel gets older and starts to think about retirement, his succession plan was simple. He appointed his sons to take over as Israel's next leaders. But that plan was no good. In 1 Samuel 8, starting in verse 3, it said, But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Having Samuel's sons take over as the leaders of Israel wasn't going to work. And so this is when people started asking for a king. And on the surface, that might not seem like a bad request. But do you know why Israel didn't already have a king? It's because God was considered their king. The judges were there to help guide them as kind of a boots-on-the-ground human authority, but Israel's ultimate allegiance was to God as king. God was their true leader and the one in power. He was the only one who was supposed to be sitting on the throne. When the people began demanding a human king so that they could be like everyone else, all the other nations, it was a rejection of God as their king. Verse 6 continues, But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, that displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. God responds by saying, it's okay, Samuel. It's not you. They're rejecting. They're rejecting me. Give them what they're asking for, but just know it's not going to go well for them. So Samuel anoints Saul as Israel's first king. And then we get a section that's known as Samuel's farewell speech. And that sounds a little misleading, like it's Samuel's final words on his deathbed, but that's really not it. It's more like a retirement speech. Samuel is no longer going to be the leader of Israel now that Israel is going to have a king. So he's officially stepping down. He's peaceably transferring power. He won't be the leader anymore, but he'll still function in important ways. After all, he's still a prophet. So in his speech, people finally begin to understand that their demand for a king was wrong, that it was sinful, that it was a rejection of God as king. But at this point, it's too late. The ball's already in motion. They're stuck with the king, and God has told them that their kings are going to abuse their power and be harsh rulers at times. Nobody is going to be as good of a king as God is. This is what Samuel says to Israel. Here's a little bit of his speech. I have listened to everything you said to me, and I've set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. 
As for me, I am old and gray, and my sons are here with me. I have been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed, Saul. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these things, I will make it right. You have not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. Samuel said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and also his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. God's the best king, but Samuel is a really good leader. And so the people's desire for a new king is going to be a contrast to Samuel's own leadership. The speech highlights his immaculate character. No one has a bad word to say about Samuel. He has served God faithfully as Israel's leader from his youth until he's old and gray. He grew in stature and in favor with God and with people. And he retires and a new leader takes over and nobody has any complaints against him. It's pretty amazing. Samuel has proven that he's led with integrity and justice, and all the ball is in Saul's court. It's Saul's turn to take up the mantle, to take his responsibility seriously, to step up to the high standard that Samuel has set in his leadership. Samuel's speech continues, and he urges Israel one more time to be devoted to God. He says, do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they are useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people, because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. Samuel reminds the people to be devoted to God because God is devoted to them. And then he redefines his role within Israel. He says, I'm not going to be your leader anymore, but here's what I will do. I'll continue to pray for you, and I'll teach you what is good and right. He'll keep reminding the people what it means to follow God, how to be devoted to him. And then all of the prophets who come after Samuel follow this pattern. This becomes their job description as well. After this official leadership transition, Samuel continues to be an important figure in Israel in his role as prophet. We see Samuel giving messages from God to Saul, and ultimately he announces God's rejection of Saul as king. Saul was not a good king and did not live up to the high standard of leadership set by Samuel. And then Samuel anoints a new king, David, to be the next king. Samuel shows up again with David in chapter 19, and then he dies in 1 Samuel 25. We read this verse. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. All Israel mourned for him. What a legacy. What a great life he lived. Samuel was the real deal. I won't get into it too much, but Samuel does make one more appearance after he dies. And if that is intriguing to you, go home and read chapter 28. Uh, Basically, Saul meets with a medium who allows him to have a conversation with dead Samuel. And at first, ghost Samuel is like, bro, seriously, why are you disturbing my peace? But then he prophesies to Saul 
It's one of those weird passages that, to be honest, I don't entirely know what to do with, but there it is in the Bible, a spooky ghost story for you this Sunday morning. Um, Samuel is remembered positively throughout Scripture. He's mentioned in a psalm as someone who called on the Lord. He's mentioned in the prophet Jeremiah's book who says, even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, blah, 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 which to us should trigger, oh, Moses is a huge deal in Israel's history, so now Samuel's being put on par with Moses. Go Samuel! He's mentioned in Hebrews 11, a chapter which is like the hall of fame for people of faith. I think Samuel's one of the most underrated hall of famers in the Bible. So many people in the Bible are known for their faith, but also for their failures. At best, they're a mixed bag. Abraham, Moses, David, so many of the big names, the giants of the faith, had high highs and low lows. They had some really great moments, but they also had some very public failures and needed to repent. Samuel's got almost a perfect record. We know that Samuel was human, and like all of us, would have had weaknesses and flaws and failures that just aren't recorded in the Bible. And of course, there's the issue of his sons not following him, but Beyond that, his dirty laundry is minimal, or else it would have been aired out on the pages of Scripture like everyone else's. It is so rare to find someone spoken this highly of in the Bible. And at the very least, publicly and in his leadership, Samuel has zero blots on his record. In our day and age, we read news stories about prominent Christian leaders who ruin their lives and careers with massive moral failings. We don't read many news articles about the leaders who serve well, who are faithful, and who live with integrity. Most of those people go unnoticed because those stories don't sell, and that's how I think of Samuel. Samuel is like a Eugene Peterson or a Norton Herbst. He just lives this life of quiet faithfulness and steadfast devotion to God. We don't talk about Samuel a lot, and yet he was really influential in Israel's history and is a great example of someone who is devoted to God their whole life. So if we ask the question, why is Samuel important? Why do we remember him? I think it helps to contrast him with his mom. Both Hannah and Samuel inspire us in how they were completely devoted to God. That's why we remember them. They were both legit. But they had one key difference. Hannah proves her devotion with a grand gesture. She gives up her precious and long-anticipated son to a life of service to God. And we don't see that kind of grand gesture from Samuel. What we see from Samuel is that life of quiet faithfulness. He just keeps putting one foot in front of the other. He listens for God's voice and then obeys. He faithfully carries out whatever God asks him to do. He lives a life that's upright and he leads with integrity. He proves his devotion to God, not by one grand act, but by days and months and years and decades of little decisions, tiny actions over and over and over that eventually add up to become a wholly devoted life. I think that's what makes Samuel so great, and I think that's what makes him so relatable. Because maybe some point in your life, God will ask you for that grand gesture. He definitely could, or maybe he already has, but I think it's probably more likely that we'll prove our devotion to God in smaller ways by living a life of quiet faithfulness like Samuel models. I want to wrap up our series by asking the question, what does it look like to live a life devoted to God? And as a disclaimer, I think one valid answer to this question would be to say, well, it's different for everyone. 
And that's fair. God is so creative and he's so gracious with us. Lots of things please him and there isn't one exact way or formula or cookie cutter image of what a life devoted to God has to look like. We just said that Hannah and Samuel are both great examples of a life devoted to God and yet even their devotion looks different. So that is one potential answer, but it's not a particularly helpful one. So today I wanna offer a few practical suggestions and these are for everybody. Maybe you've never devoted your life to God before, but you're curious or intrigued about what that might look like. I just want to encourage you that it's never too late to start devoting yourself to God. Or maybe you were devoted to God as a child, but you either intentionally or unintentionally drifted away from your faith, and now you're feeling some kind of a pull back to God. Or maybe you are devoted to God, but lately you've been feeling kind of stuck or in a rut with your faith. No matter what your life has looked like up until today, today could be a day that marks a new chapter in your devotion to God. So I want to offer a few suggestions for us to just take a step in our devotion to God. There are five things that we at New Denver have identified as ways to show our devotion to God. So what does it look like to be devoted to God? I would propose that a life devoted to God looks like embracing and seeking to live out these five things, our five core values. The first is scripture, and here's how we describe this value. The Bible is not just a book of do's and don'ts. It's a grand narrative of God's creative and redemptive work in history. And it summons us to find ourselves in God's story and live out the purposes for which he made us. For each value, we've determined a question to ask to kind of help us take an inventory of how we're doing, embracing, and living out that value. So here's the question we ask ourselves for scripture. Are we orienting our lives around the purposes of God as revealed in Scripture? Embracing this value starts with reading Scripture and learning what it says. We first get to know what the grand narrative is and through it what God is like. We believe that God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, has revealed himself to us through the pages of Scripture. So we read it to get to know him and his heart. And then through the pages of Scripture, we also get to know ourselves and we find our place in his story. We learn that we're made as part of God's good creation, even made in his image to represent him in the world. We learn that we've all turned away from God and chosen to be devoted first and foremost to ourselves rather than to him. We learn that Jesus came back to bring us into a right relationship with God and to be the one perfect model of what it looks like to live a life devoted to him. We learn what it means to be a church, a community of people seeking to devote ourselves to God and follow Jesus together. All this and more we learn from studying scripture, and then we orient our lives around what we learn. The things that we believe and the decisions that we make are informed by our faith. What is revealed in scripture about God's heart and his purposes and intent for human flourishing begin to seep into everything that we say and do and the way that we live our lives. That's the value of scripture. And without embracing this value, we can't be devoted to God. The next value is mission. We describe mission this way. God's mission for renewing and restoring our world takes place when we share his love with others. Specifically, we are called to share the love of Jesus in word and deed with those in our spheres of influence, with the poor and marginalized in our city, and with those around the world who have never heard the good news of Jesus Christ. We ask ourselves the question, are we reaching out in mission to love the lost, the least, and the last. We show our devotion to God by joining him in his mission to love people in practical ways. The third value is community. We say we were made to experience community with others. 
only through intentional relationships characterized by encouragement, authenticity, and sacrifice will we fully experience transformation in our lives. And we ask, are we cultivating authentic community with others? The truth is, it's really hard to be devoted to God on your own. We need each other. We need people to lift us up, to support us, to encourage us, to come alongside us. We need people who will challenge us at times. We need people who will listen to us as we ask questions and wrestle with our faith. We need people who sometimes have answers to questions that we're asking so that we can learn and grow. This is why we push discipleship groups so hard. That's not the only place in our church where community happens, but it sure is a good place to start. We need each other. Practices. This is a big umbrella category. Here's how we describe this value. The practices, rhythms, and habits of our lives shape what we love, worship, and value. In each season of our lives, God uses intentional practices to form us into the kinds of people who follow Jesus and live out his kingdom purposes. And we ask the question, are we pursuing practices that form us into a community of Jesus followers? There are so many practices that can help us grow in our faith. We've done whole sermon series on this alone. Some practices are prayer, Sabbath, generosity, fasting, hospitality, silence and solitude, simplicity, purity, chastity, and on and on. It can look like a lot of different things, but at the end of the day, the practices and habits of our lives will determine the direction we go, whether we're headed down a path of life devoted to God or whether we're starting to veer off course. And last but not least is the value of presence. We believe God is at work in every place, relationship, and circumstance we find ourselves in, but busyness and distractions often fill our lives. We partner best with God when we are fully present to the people and opportunities around us and the voice of the Spirit leading us. And we ask ourselves, are we present to the Spirit's work in our lives? Embracing and living out the value of presence means being attuned to what God is doing in our lives. It means being able to look at the circumstances of our lives and see where God is at work. What is he saying? What is he up to? And how do I need to respond? How is he asking me to partner with him in the work he's wanting to do in me and through me? If you've been around New Denver a while, you probably are very familiar with our five core values. We talk about them a lot, and that's intentional. We think that these things aren't just something to put in a frame and hang on the wall or write out on our website and then forget about. We think these five things are really important, and we actually believe that God uses these five things to help us grow in our relationship with him. So as we seek to follow Jesus together, of course we would come back to these and hold them up and say, look, this is what it looks like to live a life devoted to God. They're a great place to start, and they're more than that. We never outgrow these five things. A life devoted to God is a life that's continually embracing scripture, mission, community, practices, and presence, and seeking to live these out more and more. If this feels overwhelming to you or you're new to these concepts, I'd encourage you to just pick one. Pick one value that stands out to you and commit to living out that value in one practical way for the next couple months. Or even if you've been around the block a few times and these concepts are not new to you, my challenge is basically still the same, and I encourage you to use today to pause and take an inventory of where you're at with each value. 
living out these values can feel like a juggling act at times. Maybe there's one or two that you're more naturally inclined to that don't take as much effort for you. And so those balls are pretty easy to keep in the air, but then there's always one or two or three balls that you feel like you're dropping. Sometimes it goes in waves in different seasons of life. And I just wanna say, this is totally fine and normal. I don't think I've ever talked to someone about the five values and had them say to me, oh yeah, no, I got that unlocked. I'm crushing all five just constantly. All of us struggle with one or two values while seeking to live out the rest. And so that's, that's okay. Um, but I think if New Denver is your church home and we're committing to living out these values together, it would be really great if maybe once or twice a year we just paused and took an inventory of where we're at. No judgment, no shame, just an honest assessment of where you're at with living out each of these values. So today my challenge to you is the same, to pick one of these values that you wanna double down on and pick one way to tangibly live that out over the next couple months. And don't keep it to yourself, but share your next step with at least one other person who can support you and encourage you in it. We know God doesn't love us any extra if we do these things. This is not about trying to earn his affection. We do these things to keep our own hearts and our own lives on course. The other day I was driving my three-year-old Eva to preschool and she started asking me all the tricky questions about cars. Like, do cars sleep at night? And will a car just keep on driving without me? And as I tried my best to explain to her how cars work, I got to thinking, a car's natural default is not to go in the right direction to your intended destination without input from the driver. Maybe someday self-driving cars will be the norm, but for now anyways, there are lots of things we have to do to keep our cars operable and on course. We have to put gas in our tank or charge our cars. We have to get regular oil changes or do other maintenance work. We have to put a key in the ignition or push a button to start the car. We use our gas pedals and our brake. We steer our steering wheel and so on. Our car doesn't stay in good working condition and driving in the direction that we desire by default. And I think living a life devoted to God is similar. Israel's history shows us how easy it is to get off track. Israel's path of following God and being devoted to him was not a smooth, straight line. They veered every which way, continually going off course and having to be brought back. And we have the same inclination. It's not our default setting to be devoted to God. It takes little steps every day, even little corrections at time to stay on course. So that's my challenge for you today. What's one step that you can take for the next couple months to keep your heart and your habits aligned and headed in the direction of a life devoted to God? Let's look to Hannah and to Samuel as inspiration and examples for us in our journey of faith. And let's pray that someday, when we meet God face to face, that he'll find in us what he found in them, people marked by their devotion. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that that you love us, that you're with us, that even when we go off course, you bring us back. God, I acknowledge that we want to be devoted to you. And sometimes that feels really hard. There's lots of pressures and forces pulling us away from you all the time. And even our own inclination is not to be devoted to you, but to prioritize ourselves. And so God, we repent of that today and we ask for your help and your grace again and again. Help us be devoted to you. 
Help us to live out these five values, not just for the sake of doing it, but because we believe that this is actually how we can grow in a relationship with the God of the universe who made us and loves us and is always with us. God, help us be devoted to you and help us be a community of people who lift up one another on this journey of faith, that we can walk in our devotion together, holding each other up through the highs and the lows of life, God. And it's so hard to do this on our own. So I pray that you will continue to draw us to yourself and draw us to one another and help us be devoted to you. Amen.